Hi, I'm Saul Griffith. I'm the author of The Big Switch and the founder of Rewiring Australia. I grew up in Sydney. My first job was in the steel mill in Newcastle and my second was in an aluminium smelter in Western Sydney. I moved to the US in 1998 and I've recently returned. While I was there, I enjoyed success as an inventor and entrepreneur in Silicon Valley starting technology companies. I've worked extensively with the US government, including modeling electrification of the US and global economy as the solution to the majority of our emissions. I wrote the big switch to tell the story of what Australia has to win in rapidly and aggressively tackling climate change. We've been politically lost in a culture war about what we have to lose, and we've forgotten to think about the upside for us. We are still the lucky country, and we can use that luck to lead on climate action. We have the best renewables in the world. We had good governance. We can lead the world in getting emissions to zero. We can lead the world in saving money in our suburbs and towns. We can lead the world in creating jobs and export industries in our regions. We can show by example how to make a better world for our children. Black Ink, the publisher of this book, kindly gave us the rights to read audio versions of the book ourselves. So, we've partnered with a number of legendary Australians, all of them exceptional in their fields, mostly sporting fields, to bring these ideas to a bigger audience. These are people who are no strangers to winning, and for our country and for our children, want us to win on climate as well. I thank them for reading this book with me, for you, for our country, and for our world. Hi, I'm Rachel Haynes, World Champion Australian Cricketer and UNICEF Ambassador. I'm passionate about solving climate change because we have an opportunity to take action against something that we're already fundamentally experiencing through an increase in frequency of extreme weather events such as fires and floods. To continue on this way seems not only foolish but incredibly selfish. The birth of my son Hugo has certainly brought this to the forefront for my family and so while I have been able to spend my life discovering and enjoying some of my passions such as cricket, I often wonder what his experience might be with the impacts of climate change. I'd love to be part of a generation who not only recognised the need to change, but fundamentally shifted our behaviour to preserve our planet for future generations. I'll be reading chapter two for you. I hope you enjoy it. Chapter two, urgency and emissions. Only a wartime style emergency response will avoid climate calamity. Machines that already exist will burn far more than enough carbon to take us past the 1.5 degrees of warming. We must move more aggressively than free market economics can achieve. The spirit of this book is to look forward and find solutions, not to look backwards and lay blame. Before looking at what fossil fuels have caused, let's take a moment to thank fossil fuels for getting us here. We didn't know the harm they would do when we started using them, and certainly they have helped to lower infant mortality, double life expectancy, cut extreme poverty, decrease manual labour, increase quality of life, and a whole host of other things that bring us progress and prosperity. In 1896, and even earlier, we knew carbon emissions might be a problem. But broad public awareness of climate change and carbon dioxide didn't really arise until NASA scientist James Henson testified about it to the US Senate in 1988. We know we need energy, but by now it is clear that we can no longer have CO2 emissions as a byproduct. Unemotionally presented, the recent history of human-caused emissions is shown in Figure 2.1. The Industrial Revolution and the discovery that coal could drive steam engines really kicked it off, and the US, Britain and Europe rode those fossil fuel emissions to prosperity. We can see how these emissions have accumulated in our atmosphere by country of origin in figure 2.2. The US and Europe are responsible for much of the emissions so far. Australia is responsible for 1.1% of what is already in the air. 
three to four times our pro rata or per person share given our population around 0.33%. But in fact, Australia is responsible for much more than 1.1%, something more like three to 4% if you include the emissions from our coal and gas that are exported overseas and burned elsewhere. But that also is too simplified a picture. Emissions by country in 2019 are shown in figure 2.3. China is now the dominant emitter, although many of China's emissions are exported as products that people in the US, Europe and Australia buy. The future's big emitters are likely to be India, Brazil, Indonesia and Africa, as well as the US and China. If these countries take the same fossil-dependent path to develop as the US, Britain and China, there isn't much chance of any climate outcome you'd want to live in. If they develop sustainably with renewable energy, nuclear power and end-use electrification, we have a hope. Together, these pictures tell us that while North America and Europe are largely responsible for emissions to date, it is what China, India, Brazil and Africa do next that is going to be the big determinant of our collective climate outcome. Unfortunately, figure 2.3 and figure 2.2 are used to apportion blame, or to justify this emission or that one, whereas both fail to express that we all live in the same atmosphere and the outcome is dependent on all of us. As Carl Sagan put it, carbon dioxide molecules are exceptionally stupid. They don't know anything about national boundaries. The national boundaries have no bearing on these global environmental issues. No one nation can solve this problem by itself. Blame isn't very useful. Action is. We are in a race for more ambition and a path to a better future. If Australia demonstrated a path to zero emissions that was abundant and aspirational, we might expect a lot of the world to follow. A developing nation that can't see a better way forward might justify walking in the fossil-dependent footsteps of the past. But if a shining example of prosperous, sustainable living exists, we might have more hope that they could bypass pollution in favour of something obviously more beneficial to their citizens. Australia needs to stop blaming the actions of other countries for our own inaction and for our fossil profiteering. Someone has to lead. It should be us. Emissions Trajectories Figure 2.4 dramatically shows us the urgency of heavy emissions reductions in the decade from 2020 to 2030 if we are to achieve the 1.5 degrees of warming widely seen as the upper limit we shouldn't cross if we don't want to throw the climate into even more disarray. To have any hope of a 1.5 degree world without banking on lots and lots of negative emissions, we need to reduce emissions by almost 75% by 2030. Every year we delay makes this harder. If we don't act decisively this decade, which really means this year, our chance of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees will be gone. To give themselves and their citizens the illusion that we are doing better than we are, many governments are banking on future negative emissions, and lots of them. Figure 2.4 shows clearly the problem with relying on sequestration at unprecedented scale. Each year that we delay, the required rate of reduction goes from steep to precipitous. If we do not make any cuts by 2026, 1.5 degrees cannot be achieved without an unrealistic quantity of negative emissions. It boggles my mind that we are betting our one and only planet on a technology not yet proven at a scale larger than any industry that has ever existed. Let me try to be even more concrete about this, as this is a practical book striving to be frank. Figure 2.5 places the 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees emissions trajectories on the same graph A. The second part B of the graph contemplates a fossil fuel powered machine that lasts 20 years and the effect of the adoption rate of clean alternatives on the stock of machines over time. At 100% adoption rate, every machine is replaced at the end of its life. And so after 20 years, all the machines have been replaced by clean technology. If the adoption rate is only 50%, after 20 years, half the machines have been replaced by new technology, half by fossil fuel machines that will continue to emit CO2. 
To stay within our climate window, we need adoption rates of over 50% starting now. To get close to 1.5 degrees, we need 100% adoption rates ASAP. Part C of the figure highlights that in practice, different machines have different lifespans. The average water heater or stovetop lasts around 10 years. The average car or truck lasts around 20 years before it is turned to scrap. A new gas or coal plant installed today will last around 40 years. If we were about as ambitious as we could be, every time anyone needed to replace any fossil fuel device, whether a gas heater, a petrol car or even a power station, it would be replaced with a cleanly powered electric version. This would be known as a perfect or 100% replacement rate, about as good as you can get without tossing out machines before they wear out. Hopefully this will sober you up. If we do about as well as we can do, and we electrify those giant consumer industries immediately, and we switch all electricity supply to renewables as soon as possible, and then everyone else in the world follows suit, we'll still pass 1.5 degrees. That's why we need an emergency wartime style effort. That's why we need to retire the heaviest emitting coal plants before their end of life. That's why we also need to invest in all the negative emissions technologies we can, as well as not instead of electrifying everything. Figure 2.5 hopefully says it all. This is in fact an emergency. It does in fact require an emergency response, not haphazard waiting for the market or God or the flying spaghetti monster to provide. Trial reconciling that reality with net zero by 2050, which to date is the best the Australian government has been able to commit to. The linguistic contortions of our politicians are spectacular, and one can only imagine they hope that you either A, find it all too confusing and will just trust them to keep doing something, B, are too stupid, busy, exhausted or distracted to care, C, are too uninformed to notice they don't know what they're talking about, or D, believe the same rubbish that their lobbyists have sold them about clean coal and gas-led recoveries. I don't think we are going to get change unless the Australian people, en masse, know better, expect better, and hold governments and representatives to task. Australian emissions. The reason to reform our energy system is to lower our emissions. But first we should understand where our emissions come from and where they go. All governments are required to submit inventories to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change according to set categories. The categories are not always easy to decipher, but the accounting mostly makes sense. The problem for Australia is that this reporting doesn't cover exports. For an export-heavy country such as ours, that creates a distorted view of our emissions. This distortion has not only hindered progress on the decarbonisation of our local economy, but also concealed Australia's enormous opportunity to become a zero emissions exporter of energy intensive products. Australia can in fact help the world decarbonise while building the industries of the future. Figure 2.6 shows that Australia's largest emissions are from our electricity generation, which is dominated by coal. Fossil fuel mining and manufacturing not even burning it, just finding it and preparing it for burning, either in Australia or overseas, is our second largest source of emissions. Our cars and utes and four-wheel drives roll into third place, followed not far behind by our cows. Not all the cows are eaten by us. More than half of that meat and dairy is exported. In other words, Australian emissions are dominated by producing our exports, generating our electricity, driving our vehicles, making our agricultural products, and running our homes and small businesses. But once again, this doesn't show the whole story. We redraw these emissions in figure 2.7 to make them easier to understand using a sand key flow chart of the emissions that emanate from Australia. Only about one third are formally accounted as Australia's under the IPCC accounting criteria, a total of 54 million tonnes known as megatons. Critically, we see here that around 40% of the emissions that counted against us, 224 megatons, are emissions incurred in creating the things that we export. 
All these exports are mined and farmed using diesel fuel, coal, natural gas and electricity. The remaining 331 megatons, our domestic emissions, arise from the things that we do in our domestic economy. Driving, heating and cooling our homes, running our businesses and creating the food that we consume here in Australia. Just on the numbers, as figure 2.7 shows, we are actually responsible for far more emissions. The burning of our coal and other fossil fuel exports creates emissions that dwarf those in our domestic economy. Around 1,290 megatons of emissions are embodied in our exports. More than double the emissions that formerly account as ours, but these are nonetheless emissions that we enable people in other countries to make. Looked at this way, roughly 22% of our emissions are for us, while 78% are for other people. Australians could reduce our domestic emissions to zero and still contribute heavily to climate change by continuing to export countless tonnes of fossil fuel. Cynical politicians argue that Australia should not have to cut emissions as much as other countries because these emissions aren't ours and are actually in service of other economies. That is to admit we are arms dealers selling the weapons, fossil fuels, that will be used against our children and future generations. What we're missing is the opportunity that such an export-driven economy presents. In a world constrained by climate change, we are one of only a handful of countries with ample, if not extraordinary, renewable energy potential. The world would be hungry for decarbonised supply chains. Australia could still be the first to offer zero emissions steel, aluminium, copper, other metals and agriculture. Emissions at home, emissions abroad. Australia exports more than 75% of our coal and around 80% of our gas. We export around 70% of our total agricultural production, including 75% of our beef, 73% of our sheep meat, and around 71% of our wheat. We export close to 900 million tonnes of iron ore, yet we only make around 5 million tonnes of steel domestically. We mine more than 100 million tonnes of bauxite, but only convert a tiny fraction into 1.6 million tonnes of aluminium. We are led to believe that exports are good for the country, but whose country? Perhaps Australia shouldn't take responsibility for the emissions of these emission-intensive export industries because they aren't actually owned by Australians. More than 80% of our mining production is foreign-owned. BHP and Rio Tinto, which the public think are good Australian companies, are more than three-quarters foreign-owned. Arguments abound about who is responsible for what, and these disagreements are a major cause of delay on climate action. Pushing responsibility this way or that determines who wins and who loses, making the politics extraordinarily difficult, as can be seen in the failure of your average COP to put us on an honest track. Separating our emissions and our exports allows us to refocus a conversation that is usually mired in the fear of losing export dollars. We can think about what can be done to decarbonise our domestic economy, which is a political issue felt by households and small businesses. This will be covered in Chapter 7. Separately, we can think about how we can continue to have a thriving export economy while reducing the emissions of that export economy to zero. By creating zero emissions exports, we can generate revenue for our country and help the rest of the world get to zero too. We will look past the current ill-advised and culturally polarising conversations about exports and the Australian economy in Chapter 8.